I, I should have added, too, that uh, we think we've gotten all the attendance down on a spreadsheet that we can email off to Randy at the end of service today because he, he has to stay in touch with what was happening here while we were going. <laughs> Kidding once again. <laughs> yeah. Um, in our home church, I often teach in our adult school of discipleship through passages like this. And what I like to do in those sessions is often to have it as an interactive kind of classroom setting, um, asking a lot of questions, having dialogue, having discussion, asking the group to come up with applications. And I was very tempted to do that this morning because it's the kind of passage that really lends itself to that. And I decided not to do that because it, it also takes longer. It's a great way to learn, but it tends to take about twice as long, and I am committed to try to get through this section this morning. But what I'd like to ask you to do is just to sort of imagine that you're in a setting like that. And as I ask kind of rhetorical questions going through, just don't sit back and wait for me to give an answer. Try to think actively. So what does that word mean? Uh, why does Paul use that there? Or be thinking ahead of applications. How does this passage really apply to our lives together? Okay, so that maybe keep us a little more on the edge of our seats as we go through this beautiful passage. Okay, we're looking at the, the first chapter, verses 15 to 23. And we're going to take those just a couple of verses at a time as we go through. Randy, over the last two weeks, has taken you through the first 14 verses. And I'm sure as part of that, he gave you some of the background on Ephesus as a city and on Paul's history with Ephesus as a city and the history of the growth of the Ephesian church. If you haven't had time to do it, I would really encourage you while you're going through this series to go back and read all of Acts chapter 19 and the last two-thirds of Acts chapter 20 because they give the historical record of Paul's time in Ephesus. It's a very exciting account. Some very exciting things happen to Paul, both good things and bad things. And it turns out that Ephesus was a very pivotal place in the spread of the gospel through Asia Minor. And it's just looking at that historical record gives you a really good background to try to understand some of the emphases that Paul makes in this letter. Now, as you've seen in the first 14 verses, Paul is occupied with all of the really good things, all the blessings that they have been given by God in Christ. And just to paraphrase those paragraphs a little bit, we could say that God had purposely chosen them in love and wisdom and insight to receive the blessings of adoption and redemption and forgiveness and an inheritance so that they might be holy and blameless before him to the praise of his glory. Paul reminds them that they had not been the first to have hope in Christ. That would have been the first generation of Jewish believers. But when the word of truth had been preached, he says, they believed in Christ, and through the Holy Spirit, they were guaranteed the same inheritance that Jewish believers had been promised. And so as we begin looking at the verses 15 to 23 this morning, we'll see that Paul is turning from praising the Lord to praying to him. Thanking him for blessings already received. He's done that in the first 14 verses. And now he's praying that his readers will have a deeper and more experiential appreciation 
of these things that they have already been given. In that sense, praise and prayer are a great combination. In fact, John Stott, in his commentary on Ephesians, talks about the importance of having a lifestyle that majors in both praise and prayer and the dangers of just focusing on one as opposed to the other. He says if all we do is praise for good things received, for blessings that God has given us, it runs a danger of complacency, of developing a mindset of being really special and possibly beginning to look back down on other people who are not quite so blessed. Whereas if our mindset is just prayer and asking for things, we tend to develop a kind of spiritual whininess and, and neediness and a sense of discontent because we always want something more than we have. But you put them both together, praise and prayer, and you just have a wonderful combination. And that's what Paul does here at the start of Ephesians. So let's just read the first two verses, verses 15 and 16, and we'll call this a heartfelt prayer. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And by the way, I'm using the ESV uh, translation here only because we use it at home and I'm getting used to it. Um, it's very close to the, King James, to the um, NIV, a little more literal, but I think you'll be able to follow along pretty easily. So what are some of the characteristics of Paul's prayer here to his readers? Well, the first thing that might strike you is it's, it's an informed prayer. He knows something about them. Now, it's interesting the way he expresses that. He says, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And the thing that's interesting is it sounds like he has heard this secondhand. This has been passed on to him. And this is one of the main reasons why many scholars of the book of Ephesians think that this letter was written not only for the church at Ephesus, but also for other churches in the area around Ephesus. Because this language would be very strange for Paul to use if the only destination was the church at Ephesus. Because Paul knew that church intimately. He had been there for years. He had spent two full years lecturing daily in the lecture hall. So he knew them really well. So the fact that he can say that he's heard of their faith and their love makes it sound as if his readers are a bigger group than just the church in Ephesus. And the other thing that gives some credence to that is evidently in verse 1, some of the very earliest manuscripts of the scripture don't have that phrase in Ephesus in it. So that would all seem to suggest that this is for a wider audience than just that church, but does include that church. So he has heard some things about them. He's heard about their faith and that her, their love. And based on that information, he is coming in prayer. Second thing that pops out, perhaps, is how persistent he is in his prayer. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Uh, this is one of the areas in which I find myself most convicted when I read a passage like this. Because I am not a ceaseless prayer. I, I get bored pretty easily about a lot of things. I get bored with buzzwords. I get bored with cliches. I get bored with trends and fads. And I just want something new to think about. 
And there's some good parts about that, but there's some bad parts too. And prayer life is one of them. <clears throat> In prayer life, we're called to pray without ceasing, to pray repetitively, even boringly, to go back to the Lord again and again with our requests. And in doing this, Paul was actually practicing what he preached. Because again and again in his letters, he encourages his Christian readers to be ceaseless in their prayer. In the sixth chapter of Ephesians, he encourages prayer at all times in the spirit. In 1 Thessalonians, he tells the readers to pray without ceasing, as he himself does here. In Romans, he encourages the Roman Christians to be constant in prayer. This was his lifestyle. One of the most striking examples of this is in the first chapter of Colossians, where he writes to the Christians in, in Colossae, and, and we know for sure that he had never met them. But he says that from the very first day he heard of their faith and love, he has prayed without ceasing for them, for people he didn't even know. That's a pretty intimidating standard to be measured against. So Paul is persistent. I do not cease to give thanks for you. But that raises the third notice we, we take of how he prayed. His prayer was thankful. I do not cease to give thanks. And again, that goes back to what we saw at the beginning of the need for praise and prayer together. And again, Paul practiced what he preached. In Colossians, he encouraged them to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And perhaps the most familiar verse of all about prayer and anxiety and discovering the peace of God is Philippians 4, 6. And I think I've often heard it quoted, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God will. And actually, that leaves out a very important phrase. The verse actually says, continue stead, uh, uh, sorry, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God will come or guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. And this idea of, of thankfulness in prayer, <clears throat> of gratitude in prayer, I think removes the whininess from our prayer life, the need to get something. We are thankful on one hand for what God has given, and out of that thanksgiving, we bring our requests to him. Now, the final thing, final thing you might <clears throat> notice about the prayer is it's a personal prayer. He says he remembers them in his prayers. He calls to mind uh, what, what he knows about them and those people who he knows well. He thinks about those things he knows about them. Those he doesn't know well, he does have some information he can bring to mind. So his prayer is informed, it's persistent, it's thankful, and it's personal. And just before we move on to look at the substance of his prayer, let's take a minute or two to think about what he was thankful for. Why was he able to ceaselessly give thanks? Well, he was thankful for their faith and their love. Now, it's not just generic faith and love, not plain vanilla faith and love. Each of those phrases has a qualifier. He's thankful for their faith in the Lord Jesus, and he's thankful for their love for all the saints. First of all, faith in the Lord Jesus. What is faith? 
I like the idea that faith is belief in and commitment to someone or something. So faith in the Lord Jesus is belief in and commitment to the Lord Jesus. Now it turns out in Ephesus, <clears throat> as in much of the Roman world, this whole question of the Lordship of Christ was a really central one. If you were to go back and read Acts 19, one of the interesting episodes there is that as Paul is pursuing his ministry in Ephesus, a group of wandering Jewish exorcists hear what's going on, and they decide to try to commandeer the name of the Lord Jesus and to use that in their own spells, in their own exorcisms. And they try to do it with rather disastrous results. And their embarrassing failure spreads throughout the city of Ephesus, and we're told that all the residents of Ephesus held the name of the Lord Jesus in high honor. So there's this group that was trying to appropriate the name in a, in a wrong way. They failed. And as a result of that, people, Christian and non-Christian, realized the value of this name of the Lord Jesus. Lordship, as I say, was an important issue because the basic Christian creed, the Christian confession, was and is Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. So Paul is very thankful that they have put their faith in Jesus as Lord. But he's also thankful <clears throat> for their love for all the saints. The first thing we notice about that is the, the close relationship between faith and love. That love is really the evidence of faith. It's the expression of faith. Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, what counts in Christ Jesus is faith working through love. Love is the evidence of faith. In 1 John, we're told anyone who does not love does not know God. So faith is not the icing, excuse me, uh, love is not the icing on faith's cake. Love is the evidence that the cake is real and not plastic. Faith produces love. Love evidences faith. But the qualifier here is a very challenging one. What they have is love for all the saints. Now, one of the marks of Paul's ministry in Ephesus was its breadth. You find the word all used a lot in this letter. In the book of Acts that describes his ministry, we're told that in the two years that he is teaching every day in the lecture hall, the word of the Lord went out so that all Jew and Greek in Asia heard that word. All heard it. And just as his ministry was a broad ministry, so here he says their love was a very broad, inclusive love. Their love was for all the saints. So Paul is saying that these are the two marks of Christian reality. Faith in the Lord Jesus and love for all the saints. And I wonder, as people pray for you and for me, would they be inclined to thank the Lord for our faith in the Lord Jesus and our love for all the saints? That last one especially is a very challenging one in our day. In our day of toxic division, of political warfare, 
so hard sometimes to pray for people and to love them honestly and genuinely when they disagree with us vehemently on issues that we think are important. The good news is and the comfort is that this is not a new issue. But the church has always been made up of people who disagree about pretty important things. You go back to Jesus' first group of disciples. And Jesus deliberately chose Simon the Zealot, who was a radical revolutionary, who was in favor of overthrowing Rome. And he chose Matthew the tax collector, who was a don't rock the boat collaborator with Rome, who wanted to cooperate at all costs. I often wonder what their political buddies would have thought about them being in a discipleship group with someone who had exactly the opposite political view, particularly when the one who led the discipleship group refused to come down hard on one side or the other. Or you take the time of the American Revolution. You think of Christian royalists who firmly believe, based on scripture, that it was their duty to honor the English king or Christian colonists who felt it was their duty to try to overthrow his tyranny. Both camps of genuine believers. And you go down through all of the divisive issues in our history, the Vietnam War, divisive issues today, gun control and immigration, and maybe even whether you voted for Trump or for Clinton. And no matter what camp you're in, you say to yourself, how could a real Christian ever take the opposite side? Well, even if we can't understand it, the fact is that they have. <laughs> and we're called upon to love. And we're called upon to make sure that the toxic environment in which we live doesn't so embitter our hearts that we can't love other Christians who may disagree with us on other matters. So genuine faith is evidenced back in the first century and today by love for all the saints. Now let's move on to the substance of what Paul is praying for here. Looking at verses 17 to 19, he's praying for a deepening knowledge. These are his words. He's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Deepening knowledge. Now his prayer was not that they would be given some new kind of blessing, a novel experience or new teaching. His prayer was that they would more deeply understand, they would know in a deepening way what they've already been given. In the first 14 verses, he had praised the triune God. And so here he frames his prayer also to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He's praying to the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God who was revealed and acknowledged by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son. He prays to the Father, the Father of glory, a wonderful combination of father of glory, combining intimacy on one hand, father, and awe on the other, glory, combining nearness and distance. He's praying to the father. 
And he's praying that the spirit, the spirit of wisdom, the Holy Spirit, may enlighten their hearts. And his prayer is that they may know this God, the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, in an ever-deepening way. And he sees this happening as the Holy Spirit does his ministry, and the eyes of their hearts are enlightened. Enlightened. Well, what does that bring to mind? Well, maybe you would think of some of the promises in the Old Testament of the Messiah who was coming. And the promises were that his coming would be like light being given to the blind, so that the blind can see. Or his coming was to be like the dawning of a new day, light where there had been darkness. One writer describes this enlightenment as being given spiritual eyesight. I kind of like that picture. I'm taken back to a day when I was like nine years old. Uh, really, really nearsighted. I just discovered that. Went to the optician to get my first pair of glasses within the evening. Came out of the front door with my glasses on and walked into a new world. I mean, I had been in a world, I had been functioning, but come out that door and discover I could read signs across the street where I didn't even know there were signs before. It was just like a totally new existence. And I think that's the kind of thing that Paul is talking about here. And there are things that we as, as, as believers may know, but he prays that we may have a continually deepening sense of awareness and understanding and knowledge, uh, a, a greater alertness to the reality that God has called us to. And isn't it interesting that he describes this as the eyes of the heart <clears throat> being enlightened? That would seem strange to us. But we have to remind ourselves that in biblical times, the heart was not nearly as restrictive a usage as we would make it. The heart really had the idea of intelligence and emotion and will, really the essential person, everything put together. And so it's appropriate that this enlightenment, this refocusing of the heart will bring about a deeper knowledge. Just a little parenthesis here. We as Christians like to battle about a lot of things. But one of the things that has been a battle in the church almost forever is the battle between the head and the heart. And people who line up between, behind the head and people who line up behind the heart. When Joanna and I were first married, we had some time in the evening. And so we took a course at a, a seminar in Philadelphia. Two courses, actually. One in systematic theology and one in pastoral counseling. I'll leave it to you to guess which of us took which course. But the fellow who taught systematic theology was a scholar's scholar. He was a, a proper English gentleman, a, a really fine man, fluently spoke many languages. But his, his erudition just spilled out of him. He just, he just you, know, you were afraid almost to ask questions, although he wasn't, he was, he was eager to answer them as well. Whereas the fellow who taught pastoral counseling was kind of a, an off the wall, slightly wacky, how does it make you feel kind of American guy? Just 180 degrees different from this, this British scholar. And after the class, they would often meet in the hall and they would always be battling back and forth between which was more important, the head or the heart. When I was young, I think the people on the head side were winning. Uh, scholars and teachers and academicians 
they were pretty highly regarded among Christians in general. And counselors and psychologists were sort of viewed with suspicion by most Christians, if not all Christians. Today, I think that's flipped. I think uh, now there's a lot more suspicion about the scholarly types, the academicians and the theologians, and a lot more acceptance of the counseling and the psychological side of things. But to me, the whole argument is really a shame because either extreme obviously doesn't capture the whole of what it is to be human. That we, as human beings, are worshiping, thinking, feeling, sensing beings made in the image of God. People today who say, oh, he's too, he's too heady, describe him as believing in that human nature is a brain on a stick. <laughs> and obviously, human beings are not brains on sticks but neither are they hearts in a sack. Their head and heart put together, and we're told to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our strength, and our mind. And so this is Paul's prayer for them, that their heart, their whole being, might be enlightened. And his prayer is that as they come to know God in a deeper way, they also come to know three things in a deeper way. Hope, Inheritance and power. Hope. Again, what is hope? Well, in our usage today, hope is kind of what we wish for. I hope the Eagles are going to win today, but I'm not so sure. There's no real certainty there. Whereas in New Testament times, the hope was a lot more like what a Patriots fan would feel. Utter certainty that the Patriots are going to win no matter what. And someone has said that the, the blazing certainty of the New Testament hope has become kind of a feeble optimism in our time. So hope is really confident expectation that something is going to happen. And the hope to which we're called as Christians that Paul is referring to is the hope that the gospel brings, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The hope, that confident expectation, is that death is not the final word. That as Jesus lives, so too shall his people. And that even the creation, one day, will be delivered from its bondage and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And this hope contrasts immensely with the cultural view of the day that Paul was writing. He says in the next chapter of Ephesians that the Ephesian Christians, before they came to faith, were without hope without God in the world. And just to give you some ideas to how desolate the worldview was of the Roman world, one of the common epitaphs of the time that's been found in burial sites is a deceased person essentially saying, I was not, I was, I am not, I don't care. That's about as grim and as hopeless a description of existence as you can possibly imagine. I was not, I was, I am not, I don't care. In, in contrast to that came the gospel message that we are eternal beings and that Jesus in his death and resurrection and ascension has made life, eternal life, possible. And secondly, Paul wants them to have a deeper knowledge of the rich and glorious inheritance that they've been given. Now, when you read the word inheritance, in the New Testament, what does that 
bring to mind? What is its background in the scripture? Well, the background is from the Old Testament. And it's referring back to the 12 tribes of Israel who had been enslaved and dehumanized in Egypt for 400 years and not had a piece of land that was their own. And then they're redeemed. They're brought out through the great exodus. They're led through the promised land. And then, after 40 years of wandering, they're brought into the promised land and they're given an allotment of land. A land that they can own, that they can possess, that they can raise their family on, that they can raise crops on, that can be their security, that can stake their future on. You can just imagine the, the uh, reassurance and joy that came from finally having a piece of land to call your own. And that was their inheritance. Well, the New Testament says that Gentile Christians who came to faith have been aliens and strangers to God's promises to Israel. But now they have been given the fulfillment of those promises. They have been given a share and an inheritance, but this time in a better country, a heavenly country, an eternally secure possession, one that is rich and glorious. And Paul wants them to understand that in a deeper and deeper way, not just the living hope to which they've been called, but the glorious and rich inheritance that that leads to. And then thirdly, he wants them to have a deeper knowledge of God's power. And he pulls all the stops in trying to describe this power. The ESV that I read to you talks about it as the immeasurable greatness of his power in verse 19. The NIV, I believe, talks about it being incomparably great. And the word that's used there is a word that has a sense of something thrown into a totally different sphere. We might say it's in a different league altogether. There's no way of, of comparing. In a few minutes, we'll look at the next few verses that talks about exactly what this power is. But the power is the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand with the highest honor and authority. That is incredible, incomparable, power. But we say, wait a minute. There's a, seems to be a serious disconnect between that kind of universal power that the world has only seen demonstrated that once, between that kind of power and the power that's available to us in our lives, our puny little lives. We don't see people being raised from the dead. We don't see spectacular demonstrations the spiritual power? Or maybe we're looking in the wrong places for the demonstration of God's power. In Colossians, first chapter, verse 29, Paul says a very interesting thing. He's talking about his obedience to the vocation that God has given him, the pathway he is following that God has laid out for him, his ministry of teaching and preaching and discipleship. And he says it's really hard work. And of course, any vocation that God calls us to will involve its share of really hard work. But he uses quite amazing words there to describe how hard the work is. He, he uses the word that's translated toil. And it's the idea of, of working to the point of exhaustion, of weariness. It's used sometimes to describe uh, having taken a beating. 
so a, a really, really brutal kind of, of work um, exertion. And he says not only does he toil, but he struggles. And again, that word, if anything, is even stronger than the previous word. Struggle is a word used for wrestling in the arena. It's a word that we get our word agony from. And he says, I toil and I struggle. And you would almost expect him to say, I do this with all my might. I do this with all my energy. But he doesn't. He says, I toil and I struggle with all of his energy working within me. And the striking thing is, is that those words for energy and working are exactly the same words he's using here in Ephesians to speak of power and operation and effective working out of God's power. So where Paul saw God's resurrection power at work was in the nitty-gritty of daily life. He saw God's resurrection power in things like his ability to move forward against great odds, to obey rather than pull back, to be faithful rather than give up, to fulfill his calling rather than to wimp out. All these things take great power, and this great power is available to him and to us through the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And in case we still think that, well, it's really an uphill battle, we're not sure we've really been able to access that power, we still find ourselves living in failure and despair and despondency, look at the next two verses. Again, his description of what this power actually is. It's power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This power, which he has said previously, is power toward us who believe. This power is the power that defeated death by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's the power that defeated evil by the ascension of Jesus Christ far above all competitive, hostile forces in the universe. And those forces are listed in verse 21. Rule and authority and power and dominion. We don't know exactly what powers Paul is talking about there, whether they're just spiritual powers or uh, human authorities or some combination of both. But whatever they are, Jesus has been raised far, far above them. And also far above every powerful name every name that people would hold in high regard. Think of the names that people rally around in our times. Political leaders, Trump, Clinton, Obama, uh, Xi Jinping, Putin, Merkel, Disney, Oprah, Lincoln, on and on and on, Caesar. Whatever the name, in any age, Paul says Jesus' name is far above all of them because his is the only name before which every knee will one day bow. I wonder if we think about Jesus' resurrection and ascension as much as we should. We often think of his death on the cross, and we should. That's central to our faith, to our belief. That's how we were redeemed through the shedding of his blood. 
But when we think of his death, we remember that he entered into death for us. But we need to also continually remember that he entered into death for us, that he might destroy death, and that through death, destroying it, he might destroy him who has the power of death, the devil, and deliver those who through all their lifetime were subject to slavery. That's what it is to think of his resurrection and ascension. I wonder how often we thrill to that certainty, to that knowledge. Joanne and I have had an experience over the last couple of years that is a vivid reminder to me of how I wish I felt more often. Our, our son and his family go to an Anglican church <clears throat> in the Boston area. It's a very gospel-believing church, very evangelical, but also liturgical. And we were up there uh, Easter weekend two years ago. And we're going after the service at night, and, and Jody gave, our daughter-in-law gave Joanna some bells and said, here, take these with you. Joanna said, what are we going to need bells for? So she said, you'll find out, you'll find out. So we went into the service, and it was a long service, a multi-hour service. And the first half of the service is in darkness, a, a candlelight kind of service, like in, on Christmas Eve. And about halfway through, the rector stands up, and the congregation stands up, and he proclaims, Christ is risen. And the congregation replies, hallelujah, he is risen indeed. And then in a louder tone of voice, he says, Christ is risen. And the congregation replies, hallelujah, he is risen indeed. And at the top of his lungs, he shouts out, Christ is risen. And the congregation likewise shouts back to him, hallelujah, the Lord is risen indeed. And with that indeed, all the lights in the sanctuary flash on. The organ plays a triumphant chord, and everyone starts ringing the bells for all they're worth and rings them for like five minutes. And it was the most visceral feeling of joy I have ever had in church. I had this silly grin of joy in my face. Said, of course, he's risen. <laughs> that makes all the difference in the world to the universe and to me and to you. He is risen. The energizing power that raised and exalted Jesus is the energizing power that is transforming his people and will one day transform the universe. But then finally, in verses 20 and 21, a breathtaking destiny. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This statement is both a summary and an advance. The summary is the statement that all things have been put under Jesus' feet, and he is over all things. The new emphasis is that this position of supremacy, of authority, of rule, is for the benefit of the church. He gave him his head over all things for the church. And I find that somewhat amazing. But he who is head of the church is also head of all things for the church, that the church is made complete by him who completes all things. Why will we ever think that we are inc incomplete in him, that we need some other blessing, some other gift, some newer insight, a more powerful teacher, or better spouse, or more perfect church? 
We don't need any of those things in order to be satisfied. Paul would say, that's craziness. Because we are made to be complete in him, to be filled by him. As the presence of God filled the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament, so Christ, through his Holy Spirit, fills his church and his people in the new. But why would we ever think that we need access to other statements of power when he is the head of all rule and authority? Again, in these times of, of political obsession, we need to hear the words of a contemporary writer. All power structures, ancient or modern, whether political, economic, or racial, have the potential to become rivals to Christ, beckoning his followers to submit themselves to them in order to find a fuller security. This invitation is as blasphemous as it is unnecessary. Christ brooks no rivals. His people need no one but him. Do we believe that? Have we given the watching world reason to think that we believe that? Or do we sometimes scramble for political power, just like everyone around us? And finally, if it may be true that we don't think of the Lord's resurrection and ascension often enough, I think it's certainly true that we don't think about our eternal destiny this breathtaking destiny, nearly enough. A day when our hope will be realized, our inheritance will be enjoyed, God's power will bring about our final transformation, and our destiny will be fulfilled. I think sometimes we're afraid that if we think about this too much, we're in the old cliche, we're going to think that uh, we've become no earthly good because we're so heavenly minded. I think the opposite is actually the, the case. And the more we think about what Christ's kingdom is going to be like, a place where righteousness and love and justice reign, the more encouraged and strengthened we will be to live lives of love and justice and righteousness in this life. John says we don't know exactly what we will be but we know we shall be like Jesus. And among other things, that means there'll be no more of the frustrating, tormenting, downward drag of sin. That we will be rid fully, finally, and eternally of envy, cruelty, greed, hate, arrogance, and all the other behaviors and attitudes of our sinful nature. Free, shedding those like we shed a dirty, smelly old garment. Paul says that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. We can't imagine that reality. But we do have hints. Those moments of almost pure worship, when the greatness and grace of the triune God overwhelm us those experiences of the grandeur of nature, majestic mountains and lovely valleys and vast oceans and exquisite hummingbirds, those deep emotional stirrings that come from being immersed in a magnificent piece of music, the sheer joy of working, playing, feasting together with a community of friends. All these are just hints of a far, far grander reality one which is eternal, 
when the dwelling place of God is with men. Many of you are probably familiar with the, the final words of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia as he tries to capture some of the wonders of that destiny. And I'm going to read them because I think they're so beautiful. He's describing the children, and he says, The things that began to happen to the children after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. For them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Paul has a heartfelt prayer for his readers that they will have a deepening knowledge of the triune God and of their hope and of their inheritance and of the power available to them and the breathtaking destiny that is theirs in Christ. Father, we just pray for one another that you will give us that same deepening knowledge. We ask this as we continue to look to you through your scriptures to speak to our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name.